In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hello, I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and welcome to the Voices of King, a 13-part podcast from the AJC. Originally recorded in 2008 for a short documentary, we sat down with 13 people who were close to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in life and in death. This podcast was originally released in 2018 to mark the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's death. Now, as we move into a new era, we're revisiting these important interviews to give you a glimpse inside the making of history. We were proud to document these conversations then, and we are proud to present them to you today. He went on to defy those who sought to kill him. I'm not fearing any man. I ran to the car, what happened, what happened? And when I turn around, then I can see. All I was thinking about was, Lord, don't let him die. You know, don't let him die, don't let him die. Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee. I don't go back there. I've been there, but I haven't been there. There's nothing there that I want to remember, really. Why King? Why the Prince of Peace? That was going through my mind. This man, this one man, he taught us how to live, and he taught us how to die. The Voices of King, a podcast of 13 voices, 13 people who bore witness to the last days of the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., as told to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ryan Horn. In 2008, when the Atlanta Journal-Constitution started an ambitious project to commemorate the 40th anniversary of Dr. King's death, I was one of three employees who worked on this series. When I was told we were to interview Ambassador Andrew Young, I immediately got nervous. I had to be calm and professional. You have to understand something about me. I decided at the age of 12 that I wanted to be a journalist mainly because of the reporting and coverage done by the brave journalists during the civil rights movement. I'm dating myself here, but when I was in the seventh grade, I had the opportunity to watch the PBS documentary series, Eyes on the Prize, and I was glued. I was compelled. It was a documentary that covered the American civil rights movement from 1952 to 1965. So, fast forward to 2008, really getting started in my journalism career, here I was, standing in front of Andrew Young. To me, he was a civil rights superhero. He still is. This was truly a highlight of my career. Andy Young is a wonderful storyteller. Former AJC reporter Jim Mooney. he conducted this interview 10 years ago. Uh, as many times as he has told these stories, when he's telling them to you, you he just, he, you know, he talks slowly, he's very careful, He's very old school. He's got that wonderful old patrician New Orleans accent. Uh, 
and he does not rush things. You, if you got 30 minutes booked with Andy, you know it's going to be 45 minutes. Um, you know, he did a wonderful job of telling us uh, all of the things that were happening in Memphis on the day that King was killed. How he had been at the federal court all that day listening to testimony about whether their uh, demonstrations could go forward uh, in the garbage workers' strike. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the, the thing that he always talks about, but it's still so affecting to hear it in person, is that when he came back to the room, uh, Martin, uh, who was his boss at the SCLC, sort of good-naturedly told him, you know, why haven't you let us know what's been going on in court all day? We hadn't heard from you. You know, I'm the leader of this movement, and you hadn't been communicating with me. And it sort of escalated from there, uh, and and became a it became a, a fight. They started they I mean a, they started having a pillow fight. They started I, th- I think Martin flung a pillow at Andy, and Andy flung a pillow back. And before he knew it, everybody in the room was throwing pillows at each other. And Andy said that there were people piled up all over him between the beds. And when you hear Andrew Young tell stories about Martin Luther King Jr. He often will emphasize his humanity and what a, I mean, we sometimes forget how young he was when he died. He had just turned 39 years old. And Andy, I I remember before the Olympics in 96, Andy told a lot of stories about Martin Luther King Jr. playing pool, like the the pool shark, and how even though he wasn't a tall guy, he was kind of like, uh, you know, like Isaiah Thomas, he had a good jump shot. <laughs> he liked to play basketball, and he would talk about him just as a, just as a guy, you know, and how fun and and what a sense of humor he had. And so Andy's last memories of seeing Martin alive have to do with that. They have to do with this pillow fight. Yeah, my name is Andrew Young, and in 1968. I think I was the executive vice president of the Southern Christian Leadership of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and uh, more or less uh, assistant to Martin Luther King, uh, who was the president. April fourth, nineteen sixty-eight. You had been in a federal court hearing most of that day, and came back to the Lorraine. Uh, motel where uh, the SCLC party was staying. Uh, take it from that. Tell us, tell us about that afternoon when you came back. Well, we were in the courtroom because we were applying for a federal injunction to give us permission to march in support of sanitation workers in Memphis. And I had spent the day in court testifying, and when I left the night before, uh, the day before, in fact, I saw, didn't see Martin before I left that morning, but the night before, he had been very, very depressed. And this was the first, this was the first movement we'd been involved in that actually turned violent. And it turned violent, it turns out, because somebody paid some kids to disrupt it. And... Um, we were realizing that, but still determined to go ahead. The Memphis movement was not our major movement. We were on the way to Washington for a poor people's campaign. 
where Martin Luther King was ra raising the question of social and economic justice, not just for black people, but for all Americans. Very few people remember, but the March on Washington speech was not, I have a dream. The speech was that democracy had presented its citizens with a promissory note of liberty and justice and the pursuit of happiness. But when Negroes went to the Bank of Justice with their promissory note, it came back marked insufficient funds. And the real meat of the speech was that the government had presented the Negro with a bad check. So in our understanding, we celebrated the dream also, but we still realized until there was justice and opportunity for the poor, black and white, brown, Native American, that the dream could not be a reality. And on the way to Washington, this garbage workers strike in Memphis started. And they asked Martin to just come there uh, to give a speech uh, and lead a march to the courthouse. So he, he left me in New York and told me to go on to Washington. He went to Memphis on a six o'clock in the morning flight. His plan was to lead a march to the courthouse, I mean to the city hall, get on a plane and then come back to Washington to complete the Poor People's Campaign. Um, when the march was disrupted, he was very, very depressed and he had been depressed all week long because the only strength of our movement was the fact that we were able to do the protests that we were doing and maintain a nonviolent posture and attitude. Uh, we did that because we took a lot of time to train people. We had not been involved with the garbage workers before that one morning. But we knew the people who were, and we felt that uh, they had done a good job of, of organizing. And then, as a rule, workers were not violent. And these workers were not violent. It was a group of misguided kids on the fringe of the movement. Uh, they call themselves, I think, the invaders. It was a kind of a gang. And somebody had encouraged them or had paid them uh, to disrupt the march. And they did. And, and that really left him in a state of depression. Uh, but after spending the day in the courtroom, uh, I came back uh, with a sense of victory because I was sure the judge was going to decide in our favor, and he did. Uh, and when I got back to the Lorraine Motel, his mood had changed also. Uh, he and his brother and Ralph Abernathy and uh, Bernard Lee and a whole bunch were in downstairs in his brother A.D. King's room. Um, and they had just finished having lunch. Uh, and we're just very playful. And when I walked in the, the place, he said, where have you been? And I said, I've been in the court. And he started fussing, you know, clowning. Don't you leave me here. I, 
I'm the leader of this movement. You have to keep me informed. You've been gone all day. I bet you haven't been in the courtroom. I bet you've been slipping off around here somewhere. And he just, he just went off and uh, was, was in the most playful mood I had seen. And then he picked up a pillow off the bed and threw it at me. You know, and I, I threw it back. Uh, and then the next thing I know, everybody was grabbing pillows. Uh, and here, a group of 30 to 40 year old men uh, having a pillow fight, which ended up in this motel room with me down between the two beds with all the pillows and everybody else piled on top of me. Uh, and then, uh, you know, we got up and I, I talked to him about what happened in court. And I was very proud of myself. <laughs> Uh, and uh, because the attorneys for the uh, government uh, had thrown all kinds of questions at me uh, all afternoon. And, but for me, they were simple questions because they were things that we had been through in Albany, in Birmingham, in Selma, and uh, Chicago, and this was I mean, I've been answering these questions since 1961. Uh, and so here in 1968 in Memphis, there was nothing that he asked me that I didn't have a good uh, constitutionally sound answer for. So I was kind of proud and he was kind of beating me down into my place. <laughs> but it was, it was a fun time until uh, we were supposed to be going to dinner at uh, Reverend Billy Kyle's house. And he knocked on the door and said, you all are not ready yet, it's almost six o'clock. Said, my wife's been cooking all day long. If you all don't come and eat some of these greens. And uh, I mean, she had a, a big layout. Well, he went up, went, left his room and went upstairs uh, to put on a, a shirt and tie. And, um, it was a cool April evening, and he had had a, a bad cold the day before, and, and in fact had a fever the day before. So I was, uh, I was down in the parking lot, and uh, I mean, everybody was giddy. James Orange was, you know, 6'5", 300 pounds, and in those days I was about 160 pounds. Uh, and I was out there boxing with James Orange and, and uh, carried on. And everybody was in a, in a really giddy, joyous move, mood. And he came out and I said, you better go back and get a coach. You've had a cold. And he said, it, it was almost like he said, I don't really need a coat, do I? And he lifted his head like that to sort of test the wind. And then I thought, you know, it was a firecracker. And I looked away uh, out to the street and uh, saw the police starting to run this way. And I ran up the stairs because I didn't see him. And uh, when I got to the top of the stairs, uh, he was flat on his back in a pool of blood. and. The bullet had hit him right here on the tip of his chin, and it it just took half of his neck off. And I don't think he even heard the shot or felt any pain. And it was obvious to me that he was 
he was gone. And uh, the picture that everybody sees, we were telling the policemen to go back over there. There were two, they were at the street and then there was a, a ledge with a whole bunch of bushes uh, and the rooming house and we didn't know where the bullet came from. Uh, some people said they thought they saw uh, smoke coming from the bushes. I, I, I didn't see anything. I was down in the... Uh, but it was clear that it was all over for him. And uh, well, people ask me, am I going back there? Uh, I don't believe I've been back to Memphis I went back to Memphis uh, for a lecture, but I didn't. I didn't want to go to the Lorraine Motel. I mean, I am. I I don't go back there. When we come back, Ambassador Young talks about the resolve he came to when thinking about who killed Dr. King. Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal Constitution presents hip hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to the Voices of King. Here's former AJC reporter Jim Ockmooney. You know, King knew very well. I mean, somebody had tried to kill him once right. before in the late 50s in, in Harlem. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, he was well aware of what uh, strong, polarized feelings he and his movement uh, provoked. And he kind of expected to be killed. Right. He expected to be martyred. But... The way he dealt with it, the way they all dealt with it, was they had, they, there was a lot of dark humor. They laughed about it. They talked about, you know, Andy talked about how King uh, had, would all the time preach a mock funeral for himself. Right. I mean, he referred to this sometimes in some pretty famous speeches, but then in private, he would actually preach his own funeral. And Andy said it became kind of a comedy routine because he'd be do, saying all this dissing stuff about different people in the room and, and about you, you, what you're probably going to say about me. And it just became this comedic riff, which, you know, obviously hearing Andrew Young talking about all this stuff years after and knowing what happened uh, that day, uh, it's, it's pretty emotional to hear all of that. Have you ever been back to the Lorraine since it's been the Civil Rights Museum? <sighs> You know, I, I've seen it, but I, I didn't want to go through it. I've been there, but I haven't been there. I, there's nothing there that I want to remember, really. And, and, and it, the thing that we focused on immediately 
And the thing that he trained us to focus on was in a death of a movement. People kill you to try to stop the movement. And the important thing is that you don't stop the movement, that you don't let death stop the movement. Uh, and that lesson had been grilled into us. So uh, it wasn't it, it wasn't important to me to find out who did it. We knew what did it, and we knew we knew essentially why he was killed. And it almost didn't matter who it was. Uh, and we figured we'd never know, and we didn't need to stop and wallow in that. The important thing for us was to continue to deal with the problems of poor people in America. And I thought it would be impossible without his leadership. And it virtually has been impossible. I mean, that next election, well, he was killed April 4th. On June 6th, Robert Kennedy was killed. And actually, we didn't have time to stop and grieve for him because the one thing we had to do was make sure that we got this poor people's campaign to Washington, which we did. Uh, but then, as soon as we got to Washington, Robert Kennedy was assassinated. And um, then I really fell apart. Uh, and it, it took me a while to get myself together. The, in your memoir, you talk about the, uh, the night that King was killed, that you, you didn't sleep that night. You, you talk about making some phone calls back to Atlanta, calling uh, Harry Belafonte and some other people. And you said that, that y'all actually had a 3 a.m. meeting in the room 306, King's room. Uh, to talk about basically carrying forward succession in the SELC. Uh, tell, us, tell us about that. Well, we said we must carry on. And we said, look, Ralph, you are the one who Martin wanted to carry on, and you've got to lead us on. We are totally in support of you. We will do anything we can uh, to carry on the work that we'd agreed to. And, and by and large, we did. Uh, and we, we managed to get the Poor People's Campaign to Washington. Uh, we were met there by a very hostile weather. Um, and our plan was to bring 1,500 well-trained demonstrators from the South and around the nation. And then we would train another 1,500 nonviolent demonstrators locally in Washington. And we would begin to systematically try to document what poverty meant in America, uh, in agriculture, in uh, housing and urban development, in education, uh, and it was a fairly well worked out nonviolent demonstration plan. Uh, most of us had been against it in the first place because we felt that it was already uh, 
uh, the first of the year, and the Congress was probably going to adjourn in July for the election year. And um, we wanted to put it off for another year and uh, wait until the new president was elected and then start the Poor People's Campaign. Uh, Martin wouldn't hear it. He was, he said no, and he likened thus to the bonus marches in the 30s. He said the bonus marches got tear gassed and run out of Washington, but they raised the questions and, and established the agenda that allowed John Kennedy, I mean, that allowed Franklin Roosevelt to move ahead with a new deal. And he said, we need to define the issues of poverty for whoever is the president. And we need to go ahead. And I said, well, they're not going to just tear gas us out. Uh, they're probably going to throw us in jail. And he said, that's what we need. He said, nothing would strengthen this movement more than us uh, spending a few years in jail. I said, you know, well, all of us were married with young children, and none of us had any money. And so we were thinking of the practical aspects of two or three years in jail. Uh, I wasn't afraid of jail, and I agreed that jail time usually strengthens and toughens a movement, uh, as it did in South Africa, and as it did in almost every other case where, where people spend a year more in jail. But uh, to say that I was ready uh, to go to jail for three years, no. <laughs> and he felt like we were betraying him. He felt like we were backing out on him. Uh, and he said he'd been with us on every crazy scheme we, we advocated, and he had. And most of the ideas, most of the things that he got involved in he didn't particularly want to get involved in. He wasn't anxious to go to Birmingham. So he wasn't anxious to go right back to Selma. Uh, he went. Uh, and uh, he, he, even the Poor People's Campaign was something that was brought to us by Marion Wright Edelman and the Children's Defense Fund. Uh, and interestingly enough, that's uh, where I got to know Hillary Clinton. Uh, and uh, she was still in school then, but she was interning uh, with the Children's Defense Fund, and my wife was on the board. Uh, and uh, it, uh, well. Let, let me take you back to the funeral, uh, to returning back to Atlanta uh, after King was killed. Was there uh, much discussion about what the funeral was going to look like. Uh, the, 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 most, the thing everybody always remembers, of course, is the mules and the cart. And I just wonder whether there was much discussion or disagreement about that. About that. Absolutely none. That fell, that fell in place very easily. We had planned to take a mule train up to Washington. And so we already had mules and we already had wagons and it was clearly the symbol that we needed to bury Martin uh, in a mule train. Uh, Ebenezer Church was not big enough for all of the people, but we needed to start it at Ebenezer Church. And the idea 
of starting the service at Ebenezer Church and then marching to Morehouse Campus Quadrangle uh, was, it, it just naturally fit. Uh, Martin was a product of uh, Ebenezer Church, Auburn Avenue in the streets of Atlanta, uh, and Morehouse College. Uh, I think we even went around to get to Morehouse College. We marched around near Booker T. Washington High School, where he went to high school. Uh, and uh, it was, that was just understood. That, uh, and, and I don't think anybody had any problems with that. The only question was how many people would speak and uh, how long they'd take. And uh, I, don't, I think I was scheduled to speak toward the end and I, I cut myself out because it was too long. And so I never spoke at his funeral uh, because I felt I was by that time getting frustrated that, that all these civil rights funerals, people end up talking about themselves and not about the, the movement or the deceased. And I was pretty frustrated. So I said, the important thing for us now is to find a way to, to bring this to an end and, and carry on the movement. Uh, Enough people had had enough to say. What are your most vivid memories of the service at Ebenezer? You know, I was in a fog. I don't remember it at all. I, I remember it from the pictures that I see. Uh, I wouldn't go to uh, Sister's Chapel to view the body. I didn't want to remember Martin Luther King in a casket. I wanted to remember him in a pillow fight. I wanted to remember him preaching. I wanted, you know, in a church. I wanted to remember him marching down the roads from Selma to Montgomery. And uh, so I never wanted to, I, I mean, it was not a matter of paying respects to his body. I wanted to carry on uh, his spirit. And, I, and that's what I've tried to do. Um, and so the funeral to me was uh, you know, I mean, I, I just didn't, I, 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 I was in a fog, I don't remember it. I don't even remember my wife's funeral very much. I'm not much on remembering funerals. Uh, and I don't, I don't like to celebrate or honor the dead and the moment of their death. I really do believe in a resurrection, and I think that the spirit lives, and that uh, there's no way we could have done all of the things we've done here in Atlanta without the spirit of Martin Luther King guiding us. Um, I never could have been elected to Congress. Jimmy Carter could have never been elected president. Uh, we never could have brought the Olympics. Uh, this was known around the world as a city of, of peace and brotherhood. And that's why a lot of the business came here that has come here. Uh, and um, it was also a city that has tried to help the least of these God's children. Uh, most cities have been content to bring in the money at the top and let it trickle down, triple down. Uh, by and large, we've tried to make sure that some of the money 
that we bring into the city gets to people at the bottom and works its way up. Uh, that's been difficult in these last few years because uh, the Republican administrations, well, people have sort of understood what we called affirmative action as um, special privileges for a few black folk. So many cities in those few days after King was killed erupted in violence. Dozens of cities in Washington and Chicago, probably the worst. What? Um, why do you think Atlanta stayed relatively calm during those days? Well, Atlanta was a city where people were where the poor were organized. One of the things that uh, when we instituted economic op opportunity Atlanta. Um, we uh, we organized the poor block by block. Uh, poor people participated in decisions. Uh, and it was the business community that helped to organize the poor. When we, when we organized the poverty program, uh, Bofale Jones of the Woodruff Foundation and Daddy King, I think, were uh, co-chairs, uh, and Calvin Craig of the Ku Klux Klan was on the executive committee. And, and we made an effort to bring people together, and people had legitimate outlets. They knew the police in their communities. They knew their, their, their elected officials. They had a relationship uh, with Martin Luther King and with their preachers. Uh, this was a preacher's movement. Uh, and we had worked together. Almost everybody here had been a part, I mean, even though they were not living here, many of them had come over. Well, almost everybody who could went to the March on Washington. Uh, many people came over to march from Selma to Montgomery. Uh, they later on became part of the Peanut Brigade uh, to help elect Jimmy Carter. Uh, and uh, I think people understood the importance of nonviolent social change and what Martin Luther King was about. And it was really the burning down of your own community is just plain dumb. And that's not protest. So that's a that's an ignorant temper tantrum. And we had moved Atlanta's poor beyond that. Uh, and um, I remember in 1966, right after the Watch Riot, uh, the business community wanted to uh, make sure that we didn't have riots in Atlanta like we had at Watson. And uh, so Jesse Hill and, and uh, Herman Russell and John Cox and Bill Calloway and, and other black leaders meeting with white CEOs uh, said, well, the best way to stop this is to have jobs for young people in the summertime. So we did two things. We had a, uh, the city sponsored something called Camp Best Friends, uh, which was a children's recreation program, almost a summer uh, recreation program for young children. And then um, it was Mills Lane and Tom Beebe at Delta Airlines, uh, uh, the uh, 
the presidents of the banks and of the major corporations got on the phone and they created 6,500 summer jobs for high school and college young people. And basically, instead of being in the streets with nothing to do uh, in 68, they were putting on their shirts and ties going to work. And that's one of the reasons why uh, this city has always held together. It's one of the reasons why we could pass a referendum on mass transit when no other city in America at that time could do it. Uh, and so all of this was, I think, directly back to the movement and the traditions of Martin Luther King. Was there anything that SCLC did in the days after his killing to try to make sure that things here didn't get out of control? Well, James Orange and others were in the streets, but we didn't have to. We really didn't. Um, we had worked with the young people in this community. They were sad. Also, when we did have a little violence in the 64 somewhere, uh, Ivan Allen, who was then the mayor, um, went out and talked to them themselves, himself. Uh, got up on top of a, of a car with a bullhorn. I mean, we didn't have the, the, the antagonism between black and white and rich and poor that you had in northern cities. Uh, in those days, the black middle class felt a direct responsibility to the poor. And through us, the white, the white upper class realized that uh, we had to work together as a community. Uh, I give a lot of cre credit to Paul Austin and Coca-Cola for that, because he had been in South Africa in 48 when they instituted apartheid and he had watched the deterioration of that society under race, racial separation. So when he came back and took over Coca-Cola in the late 50s, uh, he, was, uh, he was pretty much committed. And, and that's where it was the business community that had put out the notion. And we, we spent $4 million in the early 60s on a campaign, a city too busy to hate. Uh, we had prepared, and we were well prepared. The block by block organization of poor people under economic opportunity Atlanta hadn't gone on this way in, in many other cities. I don't think, I don't think in any other city was the poverty program run in cooperation between the business community and the poor. Uh, and if poor people were angry and frustrated, they went down to talk to a CEO, and he would usually see them. Uh, and um, and there, there was, well, we weren't as big a city. The other thing then in those days, there were three generations of Ivan Allen that had given three leadership in this city, three generations of Martin Luther King family that knew each other. Um, they had been working together uh, since the, the 50s uh, on uh, HOPE, Help Open Public Education. Uh, that was basically a, 
operation uh, chaired by uh, the Sibley Commission, which was basically King and Spaulding, <laughs> which is basically Coca-Cola, <laughs> uh, that uh, Delta Airlines uh, was, a uh, you know, Georgia Power were all active in the communities they served because most of the CEOs in those days had grown up in Atlanta. And uh, like uh, there was not a rigid uh, class system. Uh, John Portman, who is probably the biggest developer uh, in the city, you know, 35 or so blocks that he has designed and developed, uh, only got to college on a Navy V-12 scholarship at Georgia Tech. So he was not born rich. Uh, Charlie Loudermilk uh, with Aaron's uh, tells stories of, of his childhood and his mother running a diner, uh, saving money to get him through college. Uh, I mean, it, it's, it's, uh, it was a more stable, old-fashioned southern city where people knew each other and we were growing together and uh, we have kept that tradition pretty much intact uh, up until just about now. <laughs> so when King was killed it wasn't like people had run out the streets and tamped down a bunch of violence. It was it, it, it really wasn't in Atlanta's nature to explode over something like that. It was not. And uh, Atlanta's style was to mourn, get organized, and continue his work. And I think that's what we've tried to do. You wrote in your memoir that all, all these, this is 1996, but all these years that when you go back to the tomb on Auburn Avenue that it's still, you still get emotional. To uh, the where? To the, to, the, to the King tomb on Auburn Avenue. Does it still strike you that way? It does, and uh, because I was raised to never forget the bridges that brought you over. And I know that nothing I've done uh, and nothing I am would have been possible without the life and death and the continuing uh, spirit of Martin Luther King moving across this world. I mean, Jimmy Carter spelled it out just that. I, I didn't want to leave the Congress and go to the UN. And he said, nobody's going to take America serious on human rights. And I said, well, you know, Barbara Jordan is a much better lawyer, constitutional lawyer. Uh, she'd make a much better uh, UN ambassador and let me stay in the Congress, uh, you know, and, and I'll join your administration in the second term. And he said there might not be a second term, and he said she is more articulate and brilliant than you are, but she wasn't with Martin Luther King. And uh, he said, I need someone who was with Martin Luther King in order for people to know that we are serious about human rights in America. And that was why I went to the United Nations.
That was also why I left the United Nations, but that's another story. <laughs> it certainly is another story. Um, do you all have anything that you wanted to answer? I had one question, actually. Yeah. <clears throat> More so than anyone else I've heard speak about Dr. King, you talk about the continuing legacy and the spirit. And even when you were talking about that day, I mean, you said that you had been trained to move on. How difficult is that for someone that's your friend, someone that mattered to you, someone that, I mean, has had a major impact on your life and where you've gone? Is it difficult to have to have that mindset for the greater good? No, I think because I think I think we were trained um, not only by Martin Luther King, but for instance, my grandmother. Uh, I come from a, a family that doesn't fear death. Death is not an end. Uh, and Martin used to say, the one thing we have in common is we're all going to die and you don't have anything to say about that. The only thing you have something to say about it is what is it that you're going to do with your life so that when you die, your life will have meant something. See? And I, I always, and he, people don't know it, but when he was stabbed, in order to remove the knife from his chest, they had to cut his chest open and when they sewed him up, he had a, a cross, a scar. And he said, look, every morning when I brush my teeth, you know, I wash my face, I'm reminded that each day could be my last. And I have to ask myself, what, what am I going to do today uh, that is going to make my life and the life of others a little more worthwhile? And I think that, that was part of... My grandmother told me those same kinds of things uh, when I was, uh, I mean, she became blind when I was about eight, and uh, six or eight, and I had to read the newspaper and the Bible for her for the next six, eight years. I think she was 14 when I died. But I had to hear this every day. Uh, I'm going, son, and I, the Lord ought to, and I hope the Lord hurries up and takes me on so you don't have to be worried with me. You need to go on and do, you know, you've been blessed. You have to pass on those blessings to others. Uh, and uh, and that, that was part of the purpose of life. Uh, and so I don't think, and, and, and with Martin, he would always assume even though he knows they were shooting at him, he'd say, yeah, but some of you all will be jumping in front of me trying to get your picture taken and will probably take the bullet for me. Uh, and then he'd start preaching your funeral. And it would be more like a, a comedy routine than any traditional sermon you've ever heard. He'd, he'd just, you know, he, he'd do a comedy routine on your life. Uh, as though he was doing your funeral sermon. Uh, and everybody then, I mean, we, we deliberately laughed at death. Uh, and, uh, and it wasn't a sad thing. And I wasn't sad for him. I mean, I, I really felt that, that death for him was a blessing. That he had borne more than his share 
and of the burdens of suffering for us and for this country. And it used to make me mad when uh, people would say that there are problems in the black community because black leadership had not done enough for the North and had not done enough for the big cities. I said, well, wait, wait a minute, you know, we were, he never had more than a half a million dollars a year to work with in his lifetime. And I don't think we ever had more than a paid staff of 50 people. And yet here was the government with all of the FBI, with all of the Justice Department and the U.S. Marshals, with the whole National Guard and with the whole federal treasure saying that there were problems in the cities of the North because we weren't doing our job. Come on, you know. But he tried. He really tried to be responsible for for everything going on wrong in the world. He felt as though if he were a little stronger and a little wiser and a little more disciplined uh, that we should have worked out this in the U.S. and we should be in, you know, ready to help South Africa and we should have been involved more in the peace movement because it shouldn't have taken us this long with, with if we had known, you know, he was a perfectionist, and he held himself to a, uh, an unusually high standard uh, of service to others. And uh, I just felt that he, he, had, he had done his job. I never realized how strong his spirit would be after his death. But it's clear to me that the presence and power of his spirit all over this planet. Uh, he's more powerful in death than he was in life even. In the next episode of The Voices of King, we hear from former Georgia House of Representatives from the 55th District, Tyrone Brooks, who at the time of Dr. King's death was a young and eager activist and member of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. A special thanks to AJC reporters Rosalind Bentley and Ernie Suggs. Also to Senior Editor of Visuals Sandra Brown, Senior Managing Editor Mark Wallagor, and our Editor-in-Chief Kevin Riley. Be sure to visit www.ajc.com backslash MLK50 for the AJC's coverage of honoring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I'm Ryan Horn, and you've been listening to The Voices of King. AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. I'm Ernie Suggs. And I'm Ned Ravone. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Oh,